0: To Bed Crime Stories podcast. I'm your host, T. Hi, my bed crimers. Hope you guys are all doing well. If you're new to the channel, a warm welcome. We do all things true crime. Now let's get to it. Former FBI profiler Mary O'Toole was on News Nation recently, and she discussed how investigators go about determining if one victim in a multi-victim crime has been targeted. We know that Kaylee Gonsalves' father, Stephen, has stated that his daughter's injuries were more brutal than Maddie's, and for this reason he believes she was targeted. O'Toole explained that if one person in a multiple-person crime was targeted— it would normally be evident through, one, the number of injuries, two, the type of injuries, and three, how the victim was placed at the crime scene. Because only the investigators have access to the coroner's report, the autopsy reports, and the crime scene photos, we outsiders cannot know for certain if Kaylee Gonsalves was targeted. Even Kaylee's dad, Stephen Gonsalves, likely only can speak to the severity of Kaylee's and Maddie's injuries. We know the two best friends were like sisters, and I'm assuming Maddie's parents, at least some of them, are like family to the Gonsalveses. I say some because Maddie's biological father Is not married to her biological mother. I'm not sure if the Gonsalveses have spoken to Zana Cornadal's parents or those of Ethan Chapin. That would be a very difficult conversation to have. O'Toole stated, as other experts have, that the perpetrator planned the crime to some extent. She cited the following reasons for this. One, because he came armed with a sharp-edged object much larger than, say, the type typically found in a utensil drawer in a kitchen, so he most likely brought said item with him early Sunday morning. Two, he knew how to get into the home and how to get out of it. Three, O'Toole feels that because the perpetrator brought the sharp-edged object knew the house, it would not have made sense to conclude that he just winged the attack part. O'Toole concluded that for all these reasons, the offender knew who he was planning to attack. When asked how much planning she thinks went into the crime, O'Toole replied, well, certainly enough to be successful, end quote. She reiterated that she felt this person had knowledge of the inside of that house, of how to maneuver around furniture and other items that were on the floor. So O'Toole said she believes the offender had been inside the house at 1122 King Road and had been around it too, as in around the exterior He had to have done that to know what was going down in real time inside the house prior to committing the crime between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. It sounds like he must have been lurking around that house, peeking in, seeing where the lights were on and where they were off, seeing where the people were congregating, if anywhere. When the reporter asked O'Toole, how the perpetrator could commit such a messy crime and not leave an evidence trail leading straight to his doorstep. She said there is definitely forensic evidence at this crime scene, and that could be in the form of fingerprints, hairs, fibers, footprints, and DNA. O'Toole felt it was very likely when the offender left the crime scene, that he had the red stuff that flows through all our veins on him, that he likely had a cut or two. I wish we could look at the hands, faces, and arms of the people who seem so shady in regard to this case. I sure hope those people's families are taking the time to do a quick scan of their family members as for how the perpetrator got away from the crime scene, O'Toole said it's possible he brought a change of clothing and swapped out the red drenched clothes for the clean ones outside the home so that he didn't have to run down the street in bloody clothes. It makes me wonder if that's what the investigators think may have happened and if that's one of the reasons. They collected the contents of three dumpsters along the road near the girl's house. When asked how concerned she is that no suspect has been named, O'Toole said that what concerns her is that someone capable of committing this crime is still capable of doing it again, and as long as he's out there, there's a threat of that happening onto the next topic. Today, Wednesday, December 7th, the students' families will begin receiving some of their loved ones' belongings. It's bound to be a difficult step in their journey. Police Chief James Fry of the Moscow Police Department made a video in which he explained why it's so important to get some of these items back to the families. Take a listen. Describe what is happening at the residence tomorrow.
1: Tomorrow, me and my command team and other individuals will be going in to box up personal belongings of the people that live there. And we're going to be getting those items back to the families. Um, It's time for us to um, get those things back that really mean something to those families and hopefully to help with some of their healing.
0: Why do you personally want to be involved in collecting these possessions?
1: We have a lot of investigators investigating and, um, you know i'm not tied into the investigation side of it where i'm physically interviewing people and, and it's important to me it's important for us um, as a department to go in and and take care of the families and and get the items for them so that uh, they can have some of those back and some of those memories back that are fond memories and uh you know i'm a, I'm a dad i understand i understand the you know the meaning behind some of those things i it, it may be something that know we gave one of our children or something and, and we're just trying to bring some of that healing
0: as people learn about this stage of the investigation what do you want to say about where you're at with the investigation
1: We're at that point in the investigation where we're still gathering um, information. We're still gathering tips. We're still gathering evidence. We're still doing everything we need to do. Um, But there also comes a point in time when um, the family needs to have um, those belongings um, back, the ones that we can get them back. Um, They've asked for some of those things back. So um, we're ready to take care of that for them.
0: So the police will be at the girls' rental home in the morning on Wednesday, and potentially into Thursday to collect and remove some of the victims' belongings that are no longer needed for the investigation. The police have asked that anyone near the residence Wednesday morning try to keep the roads clear. They hope to move the belongings in as private a manner as possible, out of respect for the victims and their families. And at least for the moment— the house remains an active crime scene. By the way, Haley Gonzalez's father, Stephen, has hired a lawyer to press the Moscow police to release more information about the crime. Mr. Gonzalez said he's grown frustrated with the Moscow-Idaho Police Department's minimal transparency in the case, and he says he hopes a personal attorney will be able to force the hand of investigators to release evidence they have to the public. And as Mr. Gonzalez was talking to Fox News about the attorney, Moscow Police Chief James Fry broke down in tears during an interview with Fox News as he explained that he and other members of the force are fathers too and that the nature of the crime affects them. He also vowed that the case is not going cold. One of Stephen Gonsalves' frustrations is the police department's refusal to reveal the alibis of certain people that they've said they cleared of suspicion. I'm assuming this might mean Jack S the hoodie guy at the grub truck. It could also mean the driver of the car that took Kaylee and Maddie back to the house early Sunday morning. Mr. Gonsalves said, and I quote, if you don't share your alibi, then you're scared your alibi isn't strong enough to share with the community because that gives them a chance to peer review it. End quote. Mr. Gonsalves also told Fox News. He was upset that the department wouldn't explain why they thought there was no connection between this crime and the other similar crimes that occurred recently in both Washington and Oregon. Moving on to another topic, Brian Enton of News Nation managed to speak with the president of Ethan Chapin's fraternity house. The student started off by telling Enton that he did not have much time to talk. When Enton asked if anyone knows where Ethan and Zanna were throughout Saturday night and up until 1.45 a.m. Sunday morning, the students said they'd told law enforcement all they know and they're leaving it to them to piece things together. That student also said there are no security cameras on the frat house property. The student went on to say that he knew both Ethan and Zanna, and he said that Ethan was always in the frat house and that Zanna was a good friend of his before Ethan ever joined the fraternity. What's sad in a way is seeing that Ethan's fellow fraternity brothers are continuing their lives as if nothing happened. I know I shouldn't say that. Ethan Chapin was a triplet, and his two siblings also attend the University of Idaho. His parents from the very beginning said that they had to be strong in order to care for those two other children. And Ethan's mother spoke at the candlelight vigil at the university of the importance of carrying on and picking the studies back up, I know in the Delphi case, Kelsey German's grandparents described how hard it was for them to see Kelsey's classmates reach certain milestones without her. They're happy for the classmates, but those events are also reminders of all that they've lost and all that was torn away from Kelsey and her friend Abby. I'm hoping these families can reach out to the Idaho students' families and offer support somehow. Maybe in their shared grief, they can find some sort of comfort. On to yet another topic, Ashley Banfield talked about cell phone tower data with a former FBI special agent and how it might provide answers as to where Ethan and Zanna were between 9 p.m. Saturday night and 1.45 a.m. Sunday morning, Banfield's guest, a former FBI special agent named Tracy Walter, has used cell phone towers to track down criminals in the past. She said that she's surprised the crime hasn't yet been solved, primarily because of 20-something-year-old's propensity for using their smartphones. She said cell tower data should be able to spell out Zanna and Ethan's whereabouts that weekend. Walters also stated that on the flip side, an absence of data might indicate a suspect as well, meaning that if someone turned off his or her phone that weekend during the critical hours between 3 a.m and 6 a.m., that could point an arrow in the perpetrator's direction. Banfield also asked, how good is cell phone data these days? And her guest said, it's getting better. She talked about the new technology, which allows for the geolocating of the phone data from multiple cell towers. This can give a more accurate location of a particular person at a given time. Banfield then asked Walter the following question. If a phone is turned off, does it She also mentioned that while a perpetrator might think of shutting off the phone, he or she might forget to turn off his or her Apple Watch and to turn off air tags or throw them out. Walters answered that if the perpetrator thought to turn everything off his cell phone, her cell phone, an Apple Watch, etc., then there won't be any data. Walters stated, though, that even if the perp turned off all of these items, if his phone was previously active in the area, having it all of a sudden become inactive for, say, a three- to four-hour period around 3 a.m., that could put investigators' antennas up and put them onto the trail of someone who might be involved. That is absolutely fascinating. So the perpetrator could be done in by leaving his phone on and by turning it off. The last thing I want to talk about is that 3.01 a.m. alcohol offense on a field called Band Field that was reported to the Moscow police on Sunday, February 13th, around the same time that the crime was going down, just a short walk away. This was on a field near the Sigma Chi fraternity house. The video is 20 minutes long, and I haven't looked at it yet, but I'm planning to, and I want to see what it shows in terms of which apartments and houses in the background of the footage still had lights on at 3 a.m., and if we can see anyone either driving by or walking by at that hour, 3 a.m., Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, now stick around because I'm going to share some footage from Brian Enton. And hey, before I do that, please hit that like button. It's a free way you can help me on my YouTube journey
2: said, Ashley, uh, it was in the police blotter. 301 had something to do with alcohol. Uh, Police did take down a report, although we haven't been able to get that report at this point. This is the field behind me where the call was made, the big white field right there. That's the frat house you just talked about. You can see with the Christmas lights, uh, and it's all very, very close uh, to the house uh, where the murders happened. I don't know if you're able to, but if you and your uh, photographer Mo could sort of walk me that way, because as I understand it, you might actually be able to walk me at least part or all of the way from where you are to the, the home where the victims lived. Yeah, we can walk you there. Again, frat house, field, this is like an apartment complex parking lot that we're in and we'll walk you back, Ashley. And and I've been telling you the last couple of days, there's... um. It's, it's a dense area, you know, when you just look at the shot of the house, you don't realize that all of these um, houses and apartment buildings are around. This is like a little walkway that the students use to get down to the frat houses. Um, and we'll just walk up here. Be careful, Mo, because it's a little slippery. It's been snowing nonstop um, pretty much all day. Just looks like it let up a little bit. So we go up these steps here. And then this is a little road right here, Ashley. And you see here is the house. This is the house where the murders happened. So it's a short walk. I had no idea. Wow. I mean, short walk, that's like 55 seconds. I mean, they could have gotten home so quickly from that frat house. I had no idea it was that close, Brian.